Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 28. Psalm 28. We're looking at uh, this psalm. We looked at Ezekiel 20 uh, last week, and then we're going to begin our study, Lord willing, on the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, next Sunday. As you turn to Psalm 28, just a couple reminders, things that have already been said this morning. Uh, First, our care groups, we think our care groups are so essential a part of our, our church life, and if you're not a part of a small group community, we would encourage you to be a part of that. We think every believer needs to be a part of some small group community. We think care groups are the primary means of doing that at Bethany Community Church, and so we'd encourage you uh, to be a part of that. Sign up in the hallway, or if that's a, a little, uh, maybe not your ideal way of signing up for something, you can uh, call the church office or or email Seth, and all that information is in your, your weekly folder there. Also, encourage you to, uh, if you are newer to our church, encourage you to, to come to the newcomer lunch after this service. So it's going to be just right across the hallway. you, you got to eat lunch anyway, and so encourage you to, to come and, and be a part of that. We'd love to get to know you better. You don't have to have signed up for that. And again, that's just in the, the, the room right across the hallway. There may be a couple minutes when they're clearing some, some kids out of there and uh, putting some adults in. So, but uh, that'll be right after this, this service. And please come and be a part of that. I'd love to get to know you better. It can be hard to get to know people on a Sunday morning just with saying hi in the hallway. And then uh, finally, of course, this evening, really want to invite you to come back to, I, I, I can call it now, our church building come to our church building tonight at 6 p.m., and um, it's, I, I just realized I, I didn't look, I was going to look up the address. I don't know the address of the new church building. I know there's some sevens in it, and a two, and I think, I think it's 27577 Dutch Lane, but I'm not positive on that. I, I'm getting a, a nod from the guy, Mike, is saying yes, so we're going to call it that, 27, uh, two, yeah, that, 27577 Dutch Lane come out this evening, right next to the farmhouse. It's going to be a neat time of uh, praising God uh, for what he's done, and then just asking him to continue to, to use uh, our church, to specifically use this, this building as a means to, to glorify his name. And so look forward to having you come and be a part of that this evening at 6 at our church building. Well, hopefully you're in Psalm 28 by now. And uh, if you would stand with me as we read God's Word together. Psalm 28. And as I read Psalm 28, realize this is, this is Hebrew poetry. And the, the Hebrew poets would often use what we call parallelism. So there'd be one line, and then the next line would elaborate on the previous line or say something kind of similar or, or kind of expand on the theme. And so kind of be, be sensitive to that as you notice these, these lines and couple lines in parallelism with with one another as we see what the psalmist is saying about God's mercy. Psalm 28, beginning in verse 1. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work, and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord 
or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Uh, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do ask that you would hear our, our pleas for mercy as we recognize our, our great need for you. And we, we pray that you would hear us. Thank you for your, your willingness to hear us and to show us mercy. Father, there are a lot of needs in our, our church this morning. We think of those who have uh, some significant health issues. and We pray that you would uh, encourage them, encourage their family as they, they, they wrestle with the, the health issues that they're, they're having to deal with. Some very, very big, some relatively minor, but, but still uh, life affecting, altering, and so we, we pray for grace as, as people go through those things. We pray for those who have loved ones who uh, will not be uh, with us in this world for, for long. We, we pray for sustaining grace in the lives of those uh, who are, whose lives are, are coming to an end, and, and pray for your peace upon them, your physical comfort on them, and we pray for their families as, as, as they wrestle with those things. We, we celebrate the arrival of life in our church. We thank you for the babies who have been born here recently, and the the, the moms and dads who are expecting here in the, the coming weeks, and we, we pray for grace in their lives as well. We celebrate with them, rejoice in what you're doing, and, and pray for them as they begin this, this, this big journey of life together as a, as a family, and, and we pray for the, the souls of these little ones, that they would trust in you, trust in your son Jesus. And we do, as, as a community of faith, affirm our trust in you this morning as we open your word We trust you to love us. We trust you to forgive us. We trust you to help us understand who you are and what you desire us to know and who you desire us to be. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us have needed mercy before. All of us have found ourselves in situations in which we need grace, in which we need forgiveness. There's been a situation in which we have been and we've, we've made the situation worse and we've had to ask people for mercy. We've been in a financial bind and we've had to ask maybe a family member to extend us some grace or a person with whom we're dealing to, to be merciful to us. We've been in a work situation and in this work situation we've caused our, our co-workers some grief or we've made it difficult for them to do their jobs. We've cost the company time and money and, and so we've, we've needed mercy. We've We've needed forgiveness, grace, in order for a relationship to, to continue. This past week, Whitney and I were in Missouri with her family, just spending some, some great time. Everyone kinda, they came up from Texas, and we came down from Illinois, and we, we uh, compromised in Missouri. And uh, Throughout the, the week, um, her family was, was a little bit concerned. I kept on getting asked, hey, um, is this going to be in a sermon illustration? Are, are you going to use me in a sermon illustration? And I, I kept saying, no which apparently now I was, I was wrong about. Um, but I'm not, I wasn't going to say anything. Just, just this. Friday as we were driving back from Missouri, 
and I was thinking about mercy and, and God's mercy toward us and, and relationships, I thought, boy, um, I am so glad that in Whitney's family there's, there's been mercy extended to me. Uh, Whitney and I have either been dating or married, not that those are exclusive, but we've been dating and married uh, for, for 20 years. And, and so, you know, I've known her family a long time. And in 20 years, there are plenty of opportunities for grace and for mercy. The times that I've had to say, you know what, I handled this situation poorly. Will you please forgive me? And, and mercy has been extended. Grace has been extended. And, and, and you need that in a healthy relationship, right? In fact, in a relationship where there's no mercy, in a relationship where there's resentment and people harbor grudges and there's lack of willingness to show mercy and grace, forgiveness, that's an unhealthy relationship. And the same, of course, is true in our relationship with God. If we're going to be in a healthy, a right relationship with God, mercy must exist in that relationship. Apart from God showing his mercy to me, I have no hope of being in right relationship with him. I need mercy. As we think about what God has called us to do, who he's called us to be, we know that we need his mercy. We know that we need God to be merciful to us. In fact, think about just the the two greatest commandments. God has commanded us to to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. He's commanded us to love our neighbors, ourselves. And and just on those two great commandments, we fail on a moment-by-moment basis. We fail to be obedient to those two great commandments. And so if we are going to be in a relationship with God, we need his mercy. We need his mercy when we enter into a relationship with God. As we come into a relationship with God by faith, we have to say, God, I don't deserve to be in a relationship with you. I, I need your mercy. I've, I've failed you. I've, I've lived in disobedience to you and rebellion to you. I need your mercy. And then we enter in that relationship with God on the basis of his mercy toward us. And then we need, as we continue that relationship, we need his mercy to continue in relationship. Not only do we come to God saying, hey, I've been in rebellion to you. I want to enter into a relationship with you. Not only do we enter into that relationship by mercy, but we keep coming back to him. And we say, hey, God, I, I, know, I know that I've asked forgiveness for this before. And I, I know I've been disobedient before and I've asked for mercy and you've given it to me, but I, I'm, I need it again. I need mercy again. We keep coming back to God, needing his mercy. And trusting that he's going to show us that mercy. Because if God will not show us continued mercy, we can't stay in relationship with him. Two weeks ago, we looked at mercy from a divine perspective. In Ezekiel 20, it was God talking about his mercy. And in Ezekiel 20, God says, okay, I'm, I'm going to show mercy and I'm going to do it. Why? for the the sake of my name. And there's other times where I'm going to show judgment. And why am I going to show judgment? For the sake of my name. That's Ezekiel 20. It's it's God's perspective, a a divine perspective of what mercy looks like. God saying, 
I'm going to look down at humanity and I'm going to show mercy. And when I show mercy, it's for the sake of my name. And I'm going to sometimes exercise judgment. And when I show judgment, it's for the sake of my name so that I will be glorified. So whether I show mercy or whether I show judgment, my name will be exalted. That's mercy and judgment from a divine perspective. And now, in Psalm 28, we look at at mercy from a human perspective. In Psalm 28, we see the psalmist, we see David as a person who's in need of mercy. It's a human being here in Psalm 28 saying, okay, God, I need your mercy now. Please extend your mercy to me. So now it's, it's from the, the human perspective, the human view of what God's mercy looks like. And so here's the problem. Here's the problem. Maybe you see it already. If it's true from a divine perspective that God's mercy and God's judgment both bring him glory. And we saw two weeks ago that the ultimate reason that God shows mercy is not because of something intrinsic in us. In other words, God doesn't say, wow, there's something in that Daniel Bennett that really deserves mercy, so I'm going to show him mercy. We saw two weeks ago that's not ultimately why God shows mercy. It's not about me. Ultimately, God's mercy is about him and his character. Mercy tells us far more about the one who extends it than the one who receives it, right? So if that's true, if, if God shows mercy so that his name will be exalted and the same thing happens with judgment, the, the problem from a human perspective is what confidence do I have that God will show me mercy? If it's true that God receives glory from both judgment and mercy, what's my confidence as I come before God asking for his mercy that I'm going to receive it? If God could receive glory from both acts, what confidence do I have as I come before God asking for mercy that I'll receive it? That's, that's the problem that I think we have left over from Ezekiel 22 weeks. So let's look at Psalm 28. And let's look at the psalmist here, and let's see how this, the psalmist answers this question, who's going to receive mercy? What confidence can I have as I come to God asking for mercy that I'm going to receive it? I want to look at, at Psalm 28. I want to look, first of all, at this, this need for mercy in verses 1 through 2, and, and then we're going to look at the wicked who receive judgment, and then we're going to look at the righteous who receive mercy. So open up there, if you're not already there, Psalm 28, look at the first two verses, and Let's ask this question, who receives mercy? Will I receive mercy in verses 1 and 2? And and as we read these verses, notice how desperate the psalmist is. Will I receive mercy is kind of the question I come to as I look at verses 1 and 2. And here's what the psalmist writes. He says, "To to you, O Lord, I call. So the first thing we see about this psalmist and his desperation, that the first clue that we have that he's in a desperate predicament is who he's calling out to. He's calling out to God. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me. So who is the Lord? Well, the second line tells us the Lord is a rock. He's this secure foundation. He says, it's to you I I call. Don't be deaf to me. Don't fail to listen to me. He says, if if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. I'm calling out to you, God. You're the only one to whom I can turn. And if There's no plan B here. If you don't listen to me, I'm going to be like those who go down to the pit. I'm toast. So I I need you to listen to me. And God's ability to listen and to hear is an aspect of, of of his character, an essential attribute of who he is. I was 
last week kind of spending some time with, with Whitney and the kids, and, and Whitney and I were working on something at the table, and the, the kids are in, in another area of the house, and I, I told her, I said, um, Whitney, can, can you hear that? And she said, no. Um, for the sake of my sanity, I, I've learned not to listen to things like a good parent. And I said, well, um, I, th- I said, I think your sons have taken some of the lyrics to the Annie musical and have turned them into a song about bazookas, missiles, and laser beams. Um, she goes, yep, keeping my sanity, not listening, okay? A couple days later, I, I, was, I was in the car with, with Ellie, and I realized that she was... Uh, that she was still talking. And I had, you know, long time ago, I had moved on to something else. And she was still just, and so I, I turned on my, I turned on my tape, my little, not tape recorder, it's a digital recorder on my phone, and I just recorded her talking. And later I played it back for Whitney. I said, Whitney, have, have you heard her say the, I mean, those of you, many of you may think Ellie's very quiet, and, and she isn't, and, but then sometimes she just starts talking. And, and we just started listening to this tape recording, and, and it's just, it was a lot of stuff, a lot of really good thoughts, and just one interesting thought after another. And I said, have you heard her say this? And Whitney said, no, once again, sanity. I've, I've learned not to listen. I've learned when to listen and when not to. Here's the amazing thing about God, though. God listens to us more carefully than we listen to ourselves. There is no moment in the history of the, the, the universe that God has not been intimately aware of every detail of what's going on. There's no moment of your life in which God has not been completely and totally aware of everything that you're thinking or feeling or, or, or wondering about. There's, there's no part of your subconscious, if that's even the right phrase, to describe that, that part of your mind where you're not really thinking about what you're thinking about. There's no part of, of who you are that God is not completely aware of. And so there's, there are no words that you've ever uttered to God that he's ever said, no, I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. Can you say that again? And that's the one to whom the psalmist cries. Psalm 121, verse 1, the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He's creator God. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. There's no point in God's existence where his attention to every detail of his created work has ever slipped. The psalmist cries out to God, and we see his desperation because he he knows there's only one person to whom he can turn. It's God. And God's silence, we see in the last two parts of verse 1, would mean the psalmist's death, his destruction. The psalmist isn't saying, okay, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of try a variety of things. I'm going to try this God thing. Maybe I'll try a little karma, be nice to people, and we'll kind of see what works out. And maybe I'll also try worshiping Baal or, or some other Canaanite God. No, the psalmist says, uh, I've got one hope, and it's God. There's no plan B. There's no backup. I'm desperate. There's only one person who can help me. It's God. Now, we also see his desperation as he he recognizes that he doesn't deserve help from God. Look at verse 2. The psalmist says, hear the voice of my my pleas for mercy. And that word plea means to to ask for grace, to, to entreat. The person who is a person who who's pleading is a person who recognizes that 
They don't deserve whatever it is that they receive. Proverbs uses this, this word. It's used by the psalmist in Proverbs 18.23. The, the proverb says, the poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. In other words, the rich person can answer however he wants because he has power. But, but the poor person, the, the poor person has, has nothing in and of themselves to force another person to act. The only thing they can do is to entreat, to, to plea. The psalmist is desperate. He says, hear my my, my pleas for mercy, and then he, he elaborates, when I cry to you for, for help. That word, or that phrase, cry for help, is actually one word in the Hebrew, and it describes an, an audible request for assistance, for salvation. It, it's used in times of intense need. Now, whenever we use the word help, we kind of use it in a variety of different circumstances, right? I might be sitting on the couch, feeling a a little bit lazy. My daughter walks by and I say, uh, hey, can you, can you help Daddy out and, and bring me that glass of water on the table way over there because Daddy is just so lazy right now and just help Daddy out. Okay, she brings me the water. Hey, thanks for the help. Well, it's help, I guess, but very limited sense. Or, or maybe a few uh, weeks ago we were installing a, a new dishwasher and and my son was, was helping me, right? There were some things that I probably could have done on my own if I had the time, but, but it was helpful to have him around, and it was helping teach him. And so he was helping me, but eh, it wasn't necessary. But there's other times when we use the word help, and it means we're desperate. Apart from another person intervening in a situation, it's not going to go well. So, for example, my, my relationship with my wife is, is, is on its last legs. And, and, and a person might say, I need help me. Someone help us in this situation. We, we can't go on like this. Please help. It's desperation. Or we come to a financial place in our lives where we say, okay, the, the bills are, are overwhelming and I'm going to lose my house. I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. And so you turn to someone and say, help me. I, I can't do this. I, I need assistance. That's the type of help that we see used here in Scripture. It's a person coming to the recognition that I'm in a situation that I, I can't get out of on my own. The psalmist here is saying, I have no ability to, to save myself. And not only do I not have the ability to save myself, I don't have anything in myself that deserves someone else helping me, the only one who can help me. God, I don't deserve that. I'm completely dependent upon him showing mercy. There's a recognition that David has that he needs help. He needs help and he turns to God for that help. Now, the question again that I have as I come to the end of verse 2 is, okay, if I come to that recognition that I need help, and every single person in here should have come to that recognition, will I receive it? Will I receive mercy? And we see the wicked, and we see the righteous. One receives judgment, and one receives mercy. Now, how do we know that we're going to be the ones who receive mercy? Well, let's first look at the wicked why the wicked receive judgment in verses 3 through 5. Now, as the psalmist here gives 
us these, these verses, there are two requests. I want you to see the two requests here. Uh, the first request that the psalmist has is, uh, don't let me receive judgment. He says in verse 3, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil. So don't drag me off with the wicked. Imagine there's a, a big circle here, and in the circle are all the wicked. And then he de- defines it in the next line who the wicked are, those who, who work evil. So who are the wicked? They're the people who work evil, who do evil things. There's this big circle, and, and all the wicked people are in, inside that circle. And he says, uh, these are the people who, and he gives an example, they're people who violate that second great commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself. He says they're people who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their heart. And so the first request that David has here is he says, okay, as this, this group, this, this group of wicked people, the workers of evil who violate their relational obligations— as that group is drug off, as that group is carried off into judgment, don't let me be a part of that. That's the request. Preserve me from that circle of, of people who are being carried off to judgment. Protect me. I don't want to be assigned a place with the wicked. That's the first request. But look again at the text. Verse 4 seems a little strange to me. And, and maybe it seems strange to you, verses 4 and 5. Here, here's the second request. He says, give to them, that is the wicked, according to their work. Then the next line, parallel, and according to the evil of their deed. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Now, what's the second request? The first request was, hey, when this, when this group of wicked gets, gets carried off, I don't want any part of that. Protect me from that. The second request is make sure the wicked get what's coming to them. Judge them according to their deeds. Whatever they've done, make sure they get an award for it, a reward. Does that seem a little strange to you? He wants mercy, but he wants the wicked to get what's coming to them. Let me suggest to you, first of all, that we're very selective when it comes to the idea of getting what we deserve, right? Imagine that you received your paycheck, your you open up your paycheck and it was half what your salary was supposed to be. You negotiated your contract. You're supposed to get this in a two-week period and you open up your, your paycheck and it's, it's half what it's supposed to be. There'd be a sense of righteous indignation, right? Okay, I, I worked these hours. We agreed upon my wages and I have something that's, that's owed to me that is due me and I've, I've received something less than that. This needs to be dealt with. I need to get what's mine. Now, imagine another scenario. Imagine in another scenario, you're, you're driving down the highway, and as you drive down the highway, you are traveling at speeds that are in excess of what the speed limit is. And as you drive down the highway at these speeds that are in excess of the speed limit, you drive by a police officer. Now, I've never felt this personally, but people have told me about it before. As you as you drive, as you as you drive past this police officer, there's this feeling in your in your your stomach, and and it's like, oh dear. And you you look in your rearview mirror, and you you wonder, uh, am I about to receive the the rewards of my labor here? Um, am I about to receive what I deserve? And there's this 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 sense as you you fail to see the lights in your rearview mirror, and you realize that there's not going to be a ticket today. You think, well. How, how dare that police officer? I am owed a ticket. 
I have blatantly violated the, I, I, I deserve that ticket, and I am, I'm angry that I'm not receiving what is my due reward. I want what's coming to me. No, we, we don't respond that way, right? We're very excited about the idea of, of mercy in that situation, of not receiving what's our due reward. But God is a God of justice. Every action is going to receive what it, what it deserves. And so we, we see, we, we come here to, to verse 4, and we see that there is this, this, this reckoning of deeds with, with, with punishment. Evil deeds re- receive punishment, do reward. And now verse 5 puts this in, in a, a right context here. It, it, it creates this, this God-centeredness to the psalmist's request. The psalmist's request isn't just, hey, um, pay these guys back because they've, they've really ticked me off. No, he, he, puts it, he, ground, he grounds this all in the character of God. He's motivated in his desire for justice because of God's glory. It says in verse 5, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. There's this sense in which those who have rejected God are going to rightly be judged on the basis of their deeds. Now, I'll tell you this, I, I still struggle with it. I still struggle with this, and we'll talk about some things I think can help us understand this, but just a couple thoughts. One, we do need to keep in mind here, we have to always be motivated by a desire for God's glory, right? And another thing I think we have to keep in mind is that there should be on the part of every person who loves God's righteousness, there should be in our heart a desire to see evil dealt with. There should be a desire to see evil done away with. I I think, and every time I I mention this issue, I know I offend some people because they they feel like politics doesn't have a place in the church, which I would say, well, one, I disagree with that. Two, this shouldn't be a political issue in my mind. But I think about what's what's taken place just over the last few weeks with these these videos that have come out about what's happening with, with Planned Parenthood. And you know, I can't even describe to you what takes place in those videos because of the innocence of some of the people in our, our younger members of our congregation that I think we need to protect their innocence. But there, there's, there's a practice, a murder that's being described in these videos that, that I can't even mention from the pulpit because of the younger members of our audience. And, and there, there's an evil that's taking place and, and, and the reality that that evil exists and that, and that people are, you know what, some people are saying, well, hey, the things that we're describing here are, are legal to, what, to which I say, who cares? <laughs> there have been all sorts of atrocities committed throughout human history that were legal. And so to me, the main issue isn't whether or not uh, the laws of our country uh, allow a, a terrible abomination of a practice to take place or not. But the reality that this evil exists is, is, is a heartbreak to me. And the fact that, that, um, that it is a political issue to me is, is a sad issue, right? Both senators from our state, one Republican, one Democrat, are, are not going to, to, to lift a finger to stop this. And so do I look forward to a day in which God is going to say, enough, it's over, no more? Yeah, I, I kind of do. I do look forward to that day. 
I look forward to a day when God just tears down our, our political structures and, and deals with the, the wickedness in my own heart and says, no more of that. That's, it's done away with. I'm, I'm completely removing evil. Do I look forward to that day and do I rejoice at the idea that, that murder is no longer going to, to take place, that oppression of the poor is no longer going to take place, that, that people are no longer going to be able to pursue policies and, and practices and, and lifestyles that, that harm other people? Do I look forward to that? Yeah, I do. And so should you. And yet at the same time, another thought here is that what we recognize now is that we live in this time that although we look forward to this day of future judgment, based upon this mystery of the gospel, we now live in a time in which people do not have to receive that, that judgment, when, in which a person can receive God's mercy and not be counted with the wicked. And we have the awesome responsibility of proclaiming the good news of the gospel to ourselves and to others. David is in a unique situation here, right? He's the Lord's anointed, and we'll talk more about the anointed as we go through this psalm. But he, he's the Lord's anointed, and as the Lord's anointed... He's in a unique position. He, he is the one through whom the Messiah will come. His line is the line from which the Messiah will come. And for a person to attack David is to attack God's Messiah, to attack God's revelation that through David the Messiah will be established. And to attack David is, is to attack God's promises. To, to attack, it's an attack on the gospel. And David says, for the glory of God, I, I don't want that to happen. So it's clear to me, as we come to verse 5, it's clear to me why the wicked are going to receive judgment. Why the wicked receive judgment is very simple. The wicked receive judgment because they've rejected God, they've rejected his character, a character of, of one that is full of mercy. They've rejected that, and they, they've put themselves in a position where they're going to be judged on the basis of their deeds. And so the psalmist says, okay, because of the glory of God, Judge them according to their deeds, and their deeds are wicked, their deeds are evil. Why the wicked receive judgment? Because their deeds deserve it. They've rejected God's character, which includes his mercy. They're judged on their deeds. They're, they face that judgment. Now, at this point in the psalm, as, as you come to the end of verse 5, maybe you're a little uncomfortable, right? Certainly, I was reading through this psalm with some friends and, and family, and, and I came to the end of verse 5, and, and I was very uncomfortable. I can remember just feeling, like, boy, this, this, uh, this, this makes me uneasy. Because he's saying here, God, let's, let's, let's have a judgment based on works. And as I think about my own life, I certainly don't want to face the judgment of God based upon my works. And then we come to verses 6 through 9, and we see why the righteous will receive mercy. Listen to what the psalmist says in verse 6. Why the righteous receive mercy. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, now what does that mean? The psalmist is responding with praise to God for deliverance from a judgment that hasn't taken place yet. In other words, the psalmist is absolutely confident that God will respond to his request for mercy. And notice the psalmist doesn't say, that blessed be the Lord, for he's decided to treat me the way that my works deserve him to treat me. The psalmist's confidence is upon the character of God. Even though it's still in the future, there's confident expectation that the Lord is going to respond favorably. And then he says this in verse 7, The Lord is my strength 
and my shield. That, that word strength refers to this power that God has. And as we see in the Old Testament, this word strength used to describe God, we almost always see it in conjunction with the, the salvation that God provides. So for example, in Exodus 15:2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation, my deliverance. Because God is strong, God does what a strong person can do. He saves. Isaiah 12, 2, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord. God is my, my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. On God, Psalm 62, 7, on God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge, my, my strength is God. God is a God who has the strength to save, and David trusts in that strength. He trusts in that mercy of God. Over and over in verses 6 through 9, David talks not about his own works, but about the character of God. He begins by talking about his strength, that only God is, is able to save. This past week, we spent a lot of time on the lake, and I've shared before, you know, one of Whitney's kind of concerns around younger kids is, is water, and, and there's some, some history behind that. And, and, and she told me, you know, just, just watching some of these, and other moms feel the same way, watching some of these, these young kids on the dock, there's some deep water, watching them on the boat, you know, she just gets kind of nervous because she knows that if, if one of them, you know, took off their life jacket or something and, and a couple of them fell into the water or something, and she wouldn't have the ability to save them, I mean, if there's a couple kids, you can't find them. I mean, she just kind of thinks about those things. We all do, right? We see our kids in, in dangerous situations, and our mind kind of goes places. We think, boy, if, if our kids were in this situation, I, I can imagine them very easily in a situation where I would not have the ability to deliver them. I would not have the ability to save them. And just, you just kind of feel how, how overwhelmingly sad that would be, right? Here, we turn to a God who is absolutely powerful. And he uses that power, this is the amazing thing, he uses that power to save. Now why do the wicked receive judgment? Because they reject God. And they don't avail themselves of that strength. But here's the, the psalmist's absolute confidence. He is absolutely confident that as he cries to God, God will deliver. Here's what he says in verse 7. He's my strength, he's my shield. In him, what does my heart do? My heart trusts. I have faith in him, and I am helped. As I trust in him, as I exercise faith in this God, I receive his help. And he has absolutely, absolute confidence that that's going to take place. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. Then he goes on, verse 8, the Lord is the strength of his people. He's the saving refuge of his anointed. And he's talking there about himself, as king, the anointed one. But He's also talking there, I think we could say, about this, this, this Messiah who's coming. As we looked at two weeks ago in, in Romans 3, we see that God's both the, the just and the justifier. He's the one who practices justice, and yet he's also the means by which justice is dealt with. He saves and we receive his righteousness. Save your people and bless your heritage, he says in verse 9. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Now, this is the basis for mercy. This is our absolute confidence. When one recognizes their sin and trusts in God, and specifically we understand this now to mean as we trust 
in Jesus Christ. When one does that, one can have absolute confidence that they will receive mercy. Why? Because God will exalt his own name. And the person who is trusted in God is saying, God, I trust that you're going to keep your promises. I trust that you're a God who can save and that you will save those who ask you for mercy. And a person who comes to God, not trusting in their own righteousness, not trusting, not wanting God to to judge them on the basis of their own works, but a person who says, God, I'm trusting in you and who you are as God. That person can have absolute confidence that God will keep his promises and exalt his name by showing them mercy. God exalts his name with Saul in Ezekiel 20. Why does he show mercy? For the sake of his name. Why does he show judgment? For the sake of his name. When a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, they become united in Christ. They're, they're one with Christ. And, and now, as God, as God deals with them, his name, is, is, his reputation is on the line. And, and so he continues to, to show mercy and grace and forgiveness for the sake of his name toward that person who said, God, I trust in you. I trust that you are a God who is able to save, and I trust that you are a God who will save. God's glory is on the line as we place our faith in him, and he will not allow his glory to be diminished. So from a human perspective, how can I be confident I will receive God's mercy when I ask him again and again and again for his mercy. I can have confidence because of the type of God in whom I'm trusting. Not because I've trusted in myself, not because I've trusted in my own abilities, but simply because I've trusted in God. I think we come to the end of this passage and we think, okay, how do I respond to it? Well, I think first of all, respond with just recognition, I don't deserve mercy, right? I don't deserve mercy. And then as, as I come to that recognition that I don't deserve mercy, I, I cry out to God alone for mercy. I say, okay, I can't trust in any of my deeds. I, I don't want to be recompensed according to my works. I can only trust in God and in God alone. And then as I trust in God, I receive a righteousness, a righteousness that's not based upon my, my own righteousness, but a righteousness that's, that's foreign to me, a righteousness that's God's righteousness. You know, I, we say here, why do the righteous receive mercy? Well, people are not righteous because they in themselves are intrinsically righteous. They're righteous because God is righteous. And as God looks at them, as God looks at those of us who have cried out for mercy from him, he sees not our righteousness, but the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's why the psalmist in verses 6 through 9, is always talking about the character of God. God, you do this. God, you do this. God, you shepherd your people forever. I receive a righteousness that's not my own through faith. Then from that, worship and obedience flow, right? Worship and obedience flow from a heart that's received mercy from God. There's a song called Only Hope, Only Hope. And it begins this way. It says, depth of mercy, depth of mercy can there be. Mercy still reserved for me. Can there still be some mercy for me? Can my God your wrath forbear? Me, the chief of sinners, spare? It's the same question we asked at the beginning of our time together this morning. Is it, is it possible? Can I be, can be confident of mercy from God? As I come to God and I, I plead for mercy, can I be confident that I'll receive it? And the chorus says this. It's my only hope. 
you're my only hope. It's my only hope of heaven at the cross forgiven. Who is the person who receives mercy? The person who receives mercy is a person who comes to God and says, you're it. You're my only hope. And God responds favorably to the person who trusts in Christ alone for their salvation because his glory is on the line. And he will do all things for the sake of his name. Father, we thank you for your great mercy to us. And we thank you that you are exalted. We pray that you would help us as, as we respond and, and worship to you. We pray that you would help us to, to rightly recognize your grace in our lives and that you would cause us to, to, to extend mercy to others, the same mercy that we've received. We pray this not for our own glory, but, but for your glory, so that others could respond in, in worship of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.